0: and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach your transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. the word of the Lord. Let us pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, you stand over all as we just saying. But Lord, now we ask you to be the Lord of our hearts. If there's any transgression, anything, Lord, maybe in the darkest recesses of our hearts that we aren't aware of, Show us. Let us have the heart of David. Not just for the sake of having the heart of, not just to emulate the heart of David, but the heart of David that looked to a Savior. The perfect and righteous one, the only one whose sacrifice would be acceptable and pleasing to you. That is our Lord Jesus on the cross. I pray, Father, that we would have broken hearts here. That if anyone here doesn't know you, that you would bring brokenness to their lives because you alone can put them together. You've done it with me and you've done it with so many others here. Let us have broken and contrite hearts, Lord, before you. If there's anyone here pretending still, May they be reminded that there's a place for them at the foot of the cross where they can be forgiven. Help us now. Help me to preach your word faithfully and truthfully. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, I, I enjoy sports. You guys know that. Um, I just recently started playing basketball again. I've actually gone to the court a couple of times with with Dayron, I went out with my son, and you know, I, I enjoy sports. I always have. Um, my predominant sports, as I said it before, has always been basketball and soccer. Um, and so one of the things that has happened, at least when I was in high school, was trying out for the team. All you know what that might have been like. I, maybe you tried out for teams, maybe you tried out, for, maybe not a sports team, maybe you tried out for the dance team, maybe you tried out for a club, I don't know. But you know what that is like to try out for something and be, okay, I put on the performance, I did my best at that practice, at that tryout, and now you just sit back and you kind of wait. Will I be selected? Will they pick me? And in the meantime, all these thoughts, you know, you go through your mind, you're like, man, I could have done this, or maybe I could have said that, I could have, you know, done whatever. Maybe it was for a casting, I don't know. And and all that uncertainty comes in, right? And you're like, I could have performed better, I could have done a different move to impress the coach. Or... Whoever the person is, the one selecting the, the people, right? And you had, and I, and I remember looking at other people that would try out, and some, uh, well, no worry, I got the team. I was on there last year. I got it. You know, uh, and then you have other ones that are just like, crumbling under the, the pressure of, like, well, I get picked. And what oftentimes ends up happening is we, we have this PDF, right? Not the format, not that file format that all of us are coming to, but this performance-driven faith this idea that we have to perform we have to impress god right and this idea again happens since we're yay big right since we're little kids who have you been trying to impress all your life your parents right you want to you want to make sure that they accept you and 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 that they approve of you nothing new all of us have done it and In one particular religion that I come from, namely um, uh, Roman Catholic, that's one of the things that I struggled with when I came to faith because I understood that I always had to perform. That is what the religion taught. I had to keep the law. And when I broke the law, what did I have to do? Ask for forgiveness? But I can't just ask for forgiveness, right? I had to go to a priest. The priest would then do what? He would hear me out. I absolve you. Go do your penitence. Go do your, how many, depending on the sin that you committed, go do how many Hail Marys, our fathers. And then you'll be right back. Okay with God and His good graces. But then what would happen? Not too long thereafter, I'm right back at square one. (laughs) It's like, sometimes I was just like, Lord, I might as well just move into the confessional booth. (laughs) Like, I I can't even make it, you know. I I just... As, you know, did my Hail Marys, and maybe, I, maybe if I do it again, maybe that'll work, and maybe that'll get, okay, no. And then this, this constant cycle of having to perform, to perform, to perform. Bible teaches something different, though. Scripture, the entirety of Scripture, teaches something not just different, something even more beautiful. Something even that human minds wouldn't even think of. Because what we have in Scripture is not something that was made up by human invention. Believe me, hum- humanity and all their sciences with all their AI and everything that they have, we can't come up with something like this. And we're going to see that what that is here in a second through Psalm 51, which we read. This is one of David's penitential psalms. And what is a penitential psalm? This penitence. What is it? Right? He's asking for penitence. He's asking for forgiveness, but... The the beauty of this psalm is that we're getting a glimpse into David's prayer. Can you imagine for a second? I I don't know how many of you have kept journals or diaries. Kids, maybe some of you have diaries. Can you imagine if what you put in there would just simply be put on display for others to read? Can you imagine? Because in many ways, this is what's kind of happening. This is David's prayer and it's coming before us here. This is David's heart. This is David's heart, right? And what what can we extract from this? Well, David is seeking repentance. He's asking for forgiveness. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about forgiveness, namely the Lord's Prayer. What is part of the Lord's Prayer? Forgive us our debts. Who's doing the forgiving? Our Heavenly Father. Forgive us our debts. 1 John 1, 7, 10, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us from all unrighteousness. Not some unrighteousness, all unrighteousness. But notice that if we confess, it doesn't say you will confess. No, you don't have to. And this is the, the tricky part, which is when many times people come to religion and think of Christianity They say, believe me, you will confess in this life that Jesus is Lord or when you stand before him on that day. The only difference is that here there's hope. On that day when you stand before him, there isn't any hope. You will recognize that he is Lord, but by then it will be too late. So this psalm, I hope that it breaks us to the point of this brokenness that we're going to see here from David. David. It's, so now the question is, what exactly is repentance? Is repentance simply telling the Lord, "I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm sorry." And then we're just repeating it over and over again as a mantra. Is that what repentance is? Maybe? Maybe that's something you've done, right? And maybe that's all you've been able to say. So what does repentance look like? How do you know you've repented enough? How many sorries does God need to hear from us to know, okay, fine, I got it, you're forgiven? 50, 20? Depending on the sin, or maybe if you told a little lie, maybe one sorry is enough, but if you were unfaithful and you cheated on your spouse, then maybe you, you really need a lot of sorries. See, see what I'm saying? Like, there, the, where, where do we go? And we bring in all. and believe me, all of us, all of you, including myself, have some type of understanding of what repentance looks like. And we bring that to our faith. You have experienced that with your parents, perhaps when you were little, and the way your parents made you ask for forgiveness. And now you bring that to your faith, and you say, this is the way God forgives. Beloved, look to Scripture. Look to Scripture and see the heart of God. And this is what David is going to go to. So hopefully we'll see that now. For the context of Psalm 51, what exactly is it? David's story, as we know, we hear it in First Samuel and 2 Samuel. We see what happens there. David, this little shepherd boy, remember, Israel wanted, wanted a king. They want to be like the other nations. God gives them Saul, but he tells them, hey, by the way, the king that you're going to get is not going to be, be careful. But if you want a king, you're going to get a king. I was meant to be your king, but you wanted one, fine. Saul doesn't do too, too well. And soon enough, Samuel's looking for another replacement. Goes to the house of Jesse. Jesse's there. He brings all his sons. Hey, bring me the sons. No, that's not it. He's not it. And he he tells Samuel, man looks at what? Man looks at the outward appearance. But God, he looks at the heart. There's one. You're missing one, Jesse. Oh, he's out in the field. Bring him to me. I'm not going to sit and eat until you bring him to me. And there comes David. Beautiful in appearance. And this boy is the one that God says of him in 1 Samuel. He is a man after my own heart. You know what that means? That's David. A man after God's own heart. However, the prophet, if you continue reading one more chapter, 2 Samuel, you find out something very interesting. David gets confronted about something. He gets confronted about his sin with Bathsheba. How he saw her from the rooftop, bathing, takes her, even though she was married. Next thing you know, the story unfolds where he is sending Uriah, her husband, to the front lines to get murdered. It was planned. It was intentional. It wasn't accidental. And Nathan tells him, and he gives them this illustration of, uh, you know, the little shepherd, you know, and this guy that's taking care of his sheep. And he goes, oh, and David's all upset, you know. Who is that man? He's like, that man is you. You're the one that did that. And here comes this psalm. First words, and the very first point is David's cry from the heart. Have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy mercy on me do you know what it is to utter those words have you ever felt the weight of having to go before god and saying have mercy on me it's not something to take lightly because you know very well the one that could cast your soul and throw it into into hades and into hell right We've been hearing about heaven and hell the last couple of sermons. That's one of the, don't be afraid of the one that can take your life, your physical body. Be afraid of the one that can grab your soul and cast it away forever from his presence. With no turning back. With no hope of making a U-turn and saying, okay, okay, I get it, I get it. Let me get a second chance. No, no, no. Forever. That is, when you utter those words, have mercy on me. A man after God's own heart is what Samuel said. But what does it mean to be a man after God's own heart or a woman after God's own heart? Paul describes this in Acts 13. It's the person that's willing to do what? God's will. That is the person that is after God's own heart. And it was David also that wrote in Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. For you to express, Lord, have mercy on me, God, have mercy on me, have mercy on me, O God, assumes that there's something that's been going on in your mind, and something has been brought to your attention, for you to utter those words, have mercy on me. Otherwise, why are you asking for mercy? Because you're aware of something in your own heart. My question, and this is not just for the kids, I know it's easy to look at the person next to you. Have you taken accountability for your, for your sin? Have you taken accountability and responsibility for your sin? Because if you haven't, be careful. We have to. We must do that. Um, and, we're, and, and part of it is understanding David's plea. His plea comes from that acknowledgement of his transgressions. That's what we see in those, in those verses. You know, blot out my transgressions. Wash me. And just look at the rest of the psalm. Wash me, cleanse me, purge me. Over and over again. Now, as we will go on in the second part of, of, of Psalm 51, we're going to see that those take a different nuance, a different meaning. But in the sense of his heart is still at the end of the day. Cleanse me. Blot it out. I know Edwin loves to say there's two things a men should always have, is a pen and a handkerchief. I don't have, I usually have a pen, I don't have the handkerchief. But there's one thing I've learned to have with me. You guys know those little, and I actually brought one, but I forgot to bring it up. You know those little tight pens? You know, you know what I'm talking about? The little tight pens where if you get a stain on your shirt, you shake it and... Sh- doing one of those, you know, to get that pasta sauce from that little team meeting that you got, or maybe that little wine, a little little bit of wine splash got on your shirt and uh, on your dress shirt from work, and now here you are having to work five hours later or going to see other clients. I've learned to care. I travel for work, and I carry that thing with me everywhere. And it'll be funny in the office how many people come to me. Hey, bro, you got got that Tide pen? Because sure enough, at some point you're going to get that little stain, and you're going to be looking to blot it out. But what do you do when when it's spiritual. You can't get a Tide pen. There's no Tide pen. There's no bleach. There's absolutely nothing on the face of it. There's no chemical invented that will ever be invented that could remove your spiritual stain of sin. So where do we go? Who do we look to? And David... Not only does he say, have mercy on me, you know what he looks to? He banks on God's character. He grabs himself and he says, he supports and saying, you're going to have mercy on me, oh God. According to what? Because of me? David, the one asking you? I'm just a sinner. I was just told, I was just reminded of what I did with Bathsheba. dude, I can't. It can only be because of who you are. It can only be because of your steadfast love. That word, that word is, those expressions, steadfast love, abundant mercy, steadfast love is a covenant word. Because why should a holy God even consider to extend his mercy to us? Why should he extend it to you and to me? Does he owe you something? Does he owe me something? It's not like, God, I scratched your back. Now you have to scratch mine. No, no, no. This is where it gets real. Because steadfast love is referring to his unchanging, his firm love toward his people. He says it there in Deuteronomy 7. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Do you see that your God, beloved, is not one that doesn't change? He is not finicky in his love the way you and I are. That the moment someone offends me, the moment someone actually looks, you know why well, I didn't like that. Timeout. You know what? Maybe maybe we need to distance ourselves. No, no, no. God remembers His covenant. He says, "Those that keep the covenant." Excuse me. He keeps the covenant in steadfast love with those that love Him and keep His commandments. Now, the, the difference with us is that who here has kept God's commandments? If I see a hand talk to me. Talk to me after church, after service. Because none of us have. But you know who did? Christ did. If your love for God and keeping his commandments is through him, he will have steadfast love to you. And it's not going to change the moment tomorrow or later this afternoon you disrespect and raise your voice to your parents. Or if you raise your voice or be disrespectful to your spouse. It's not going to change. Because our God doesn't change. His mercy is abundant. Isn't that what Lamentations 3, what we've read so often, teaches us? The steadfast love of the Lord never what? Never ceases. It's bottomless, if you will. His mercies never come to an end. They're infinite. For everyone? For those that are in Christ. That's the key. That's the key. And that is what David is banking of because David was looking to the one, the Savior. We look back to Christ and what he did. He was looking forward. He understood God's mercy was abundant and endless. His steadfast love and abundant mercy reserved for those who by faith are reconciled to him through Jesus. So, where is your hope when you're confronted with sin? Valid question, right? When the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin, is your hope in forgiveness, in you being able to not fall again and remain faithful? Is that where you now look to and say, God, have mercy on me? but in the back of your mind, you're saying, I'll get it right the next time. Will you? Because I still haven't. I still haven't. Or, alternatively, is your hope in the one who is faithful in the midst of your unfaithfulness? See the difference? One banks, I hope I can be faithful. One says, and the other says, There's no way I'm going to be faithful. But Jesus, you are. And I trust and I cling to you. That's where my hope is. Now, in terms of practical exhortation, there's something valid here to be said. When the Lord convicts you, do you throw a spiritual hissy fit? You know what that is? We can get uncomfortable because it's always uncomfortable when the Lord shines his truth on you when he convicts you and shows you the ugliness of your heart. It's uncomfortable. Believe me, it is. Do you respond with a spiritual history? In other words, does that inner lawyer rise up in you, that inner lawyer of self-righteousness, that immediately stands up when the Holy Spirit convicts you and says, I object, Your Honor. I object. Really? I know some of you say, you probably don't, but I, I, I do it. I do it often, and to my shame, because I want to justify my behavior. I want to justify and believe that when my wife said X, Y, and Z, guess what? She was wrong, and I was right. She's the one that needs to ask for forgiveness. Why don't you convict her? No, it's me. It's me. And I'm not saying this facetiously, by the way. This is not false self-deprecation. I'm being honest in the sense of this is exactly what happens to me. It even happened not too long ago. Had an argument with my wife. And immediately, an entire right to work, I'm just thinking until the Lord brought me to James 4.10. Humble yourself. Humble yourself. And he will exalt you. He's not just going to exalt me for the sake of exalting me. Humble yourself. If pride is what's going to go before you, then be careful. But in humility, Lord, bring whatever may come. But keep me humble. Keep me on my knees. The other exhortation aside from not throwing a spiritual hissy fit, but accepting that what the Holy Spirit is showing you in your heart is true, the other exhortation is this. Beware of Satan's accusation versus the Lord's conviction. You know what I mean? They look very similar. They look very, very similar. But there's a very big difference. What's the difference? The enemy shows you your sin. But as he shows you, what builds up in you? This guilt. And next thing you know, you're going in a downward spiral in the other direction. You're growing more and more into despair. Beloved, I do not see that in Scripture. That when the Lord convicts you, his people go into despair. Show me one verse where that happens. On the contrary... Paul wrote to the Romans. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. When the Lord shows me my sin, I don't go in the other direction, but rather I want to come to you. I want to draw near to you. And what we see in David here in a couple of moments, we're going to see this idea against you and you alone have I sinned. Not going into the other direction. Be careful. And I love it because, you know, one of the things that the Scripture says about the enemy is that he's accuser of the brethren. He's there to accuse you and to point a finger every time you fall. And every time you fail, I told you. You know God doesn't like that. You know that was a sin and you did it anyway. I told you. God doesn't point fingers. God brings us to himself. He's not the father. The enemy is the father of lies. And the enemy, and allow me to say this, the enemy is very clever. He knows scripture. And he twisted scripture from the beginning. He twisted God's words from the beginning. Do you think he's going to spare you from twisting words and God's word? Oh, but I don't read the Bible enough. then what do you need to do? The Lord is going to draw you in. Go. Repent. Confess. And the Lord will work that in you. I don't pray enough. Okay. Confess and repent. And the Lord will work that in you. That's part of the process of sanctification. But do not... Just simply neglect all of that. I In the men's group this past Tuesday, as we restarted, by the way, it's a little pot in there for the men's group, first and third Thursday. But one of the things that we were discussing this past week was the loving words of how much we, all of us, enjoy, but God. But God. I'll quote it because it was there in the study, Marin Lloyd-Jones' words. These two words, in and of themselves, in a sense, contain the whole of the gospel. But God. The enemy accuses you, but God's kindness draws us to repentance. See the difference? That is where we need to be. Our Heavenly Father, like I said, doesn't point fingers. He draws us. Parents. How do you raise your children? You've been tasked with the responsibility of raising your children in the Discipline and instruction of the Lord. What does that mean? Does that mean you spare the rod? No, that's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is, according to Ephesians 6, 4, let that discipline always, always be what leads them to the cross. See, the, there's, no, there's no mistaking this. How do you like to be disciplined and chastised? Because the Lord says that he loves those whom, he disciplines and chastises those whom he loves. Think back at a moment when the Lord has chastised you and disciplined you. What did that look like? But then we're like the guy that got forgiven a huge debt, right? And then we turn around and we, and, and, and we chastise our children in a different way. Forgetting how much we have been forgiven. Instead of leading our children to the cross. Instead of leading them and pointing them to Christ. I remember uh, a story back in the day. My children were little. And my son was just, you know, they used to get these little red dots and these little green dots, you know, or a red, or a red, or a red card and a green card. And he's like, man, Dad, you know, the teacher gave me a, a red one when I didn't even do anything. That was my friend. I think that was Giancarlo. Giancarlo must have been like maybe six, five years old or something. It maybe he might have been in preschool. You know, it's interesting you say that. Because he in his mind is like, I don't, I don't deserve the red one. I need to get the green one. And it was just an opportunity to share the gospel with him. You really think you don't deserve a red one? Maybe the teacher didn't catch you in that moment, but I'm sure you've done other things throughout the day. But the beautiful thing is that there's one that took that red card and said, give it here. Give it to me, I'll take it. And you get this green one. Because that's the beauty of the gospel. That's precisely what Jesus did. But if in our minds, all we think is we deserve the green one and never the red one, then we miss the point. Teach your children. Lead them to the cross. Lead them to Christ. If you have, don't spare the rod. If you have to discipline, discipline them. But do so in that loving way that lets them know, I love you. Don't ban them from your presence. Go to your room, and I'll go talk to you when I'm ready. Don't do that. Is that what the Lord does with you? Does he cast you from his presence when he disciplines us? Or does he draw you to the throne of grace? This is, this is, this is all key because as we see in Ephesians 2.13, but now in Christ Jesus, you were once far off from heaven, excuse me, far off, and have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Because of who? Because of Jesus. And from there, from David's plea, his cry of his heart, we go to David's confession, and there's only two points this morning. This is my last point, so I'm sparing you. But David's heart is, is his confession. Beloved, confession is more than just acknowledging that you sinned. Confession is more than just simply saying my bad. If that is our posture of saying, My bad, I got I didn't I didn't mean to do that. But you got me. Kids, you know this very, very well. Parents, you know this as well. When your kids, I'm sorry. When my, parent, when, my, when my kids do that, I'm sorry, the first question we will ask them, what are you sorry for? Are you sorry that you got caught? Or are you sorry for what you did? Because if you're sorry for what you did, then you better say, I'm sorry for fill in the blank. Because confession is not just simply saying, I'm sorry over and over again. Verses 3 and 4. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David knew what he had done with Bathsheba. He knew wholeheartedly that his sin. And by the way, when he sinned with Bathsheba, he could have repented, right? What did he do instead? Sends her husband to get killed. What was he doing? He was covering his sin. That's exactly what David was doing. He was covering his sin. So imagine now for a second, he gets confronted with this. Now, all of a sudden is, take off the mask. Remember that in Scooby-Doo, when you take off the mask, oh, that's you. That's exactly, this is the real you. Not the one you were pretending to be. You were pretending that everything was fine and dandy. On the contrary, the Lord sees the heart and he knows what you've done. So therefore this brings us to confession is about agreeing with God. Is agreeing with God that I and I alone have sinned against you. Scripture teaches seeking this forgiveness from those against those that sin against us, right? And we likewise have to forgive our debtors. Forgive us our debts and also help us to forgive our debtors, right? Scripture teaches this. I don't think any of you would, agree, would disagree with that. As a matter of fact, Scripture also teaches that we can sin against our own bodies. 1 Corinthians 6.8, 6.18. And I think one of the stories in Scripture that kind of encompasses this idea of against you and you alone have I sinned is the story of Joseph in Genesis 39. There he is, Joseph. You know the story. Potiphar's wife is there. Been asking him, come, come, lie with me, lie with me, lie with me. No, no. And he responds this to her. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. He's referring to Potiphar. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God. If he would have proceeded to sleep with Potiphar's wife, he would have sinned against Potiphar. He would have sinned his neighbor, he would have sinned against her. He would have sinned against himself against his own body, right? But what was Joseph's concern? It wasn't my neighbor? <laughs> though that was, his ultimate concern was how can I sin against God? When you are tempted, when you are there with the temptation in front of you, the way Potiphar was, you imagine just there for a second, this woman, yeah, I mean, just seducing him. She wasn't texting him, telling him, Hey, want to come over? No, she is there seducing him in front of him, and that's the posture he takes, beloved. I'm not saying be Joseph, what I'm saying is have that same level of theological awareness that Joseph had in his life. Is God at that level in your heart? Does he sit in the seat of your heart? This is where we need to focus our minds. Now, of course, when we fall, and beloved, I wish I can say I've done this every single time, and guys, I can tell you it's 100% effective. I have blown it numerous times. That is why we can go back to the cross, excuse me, to the cross, and look to Jesus, because Jesus had this heart the entire time. He was always about his father's business. That's why I look to Him. I don't look on my own effort to try to <laughs> I'm not that strong enough. I'm not. And I suspect that many of you are not either. So confession is more than just acknowledging your sin. It's also acknowledging and you agreeing with God that you and you alone have sinned against him. But it's confession is also accepting the consequences that may come. you know what God's judgment for David's sin was? I'll read them to you. Second Samuel 12.10 The sore shall never depart from your house. The Lord will raise up evil against you out of your own house. David, in in verse 13, he confesses right to Nathan and says, yeah, that's me. What does he say? The Lord has put away your sin. David confessed, the Lord put away your sin. You shall not die. But then in verse 14, what does he say? Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who was born to you shall die. Think about that for a second. Let that sink in. David sinned with Bathsheba. He could have turned away. He could have repented. Sends her husband off to battle. He gets killed. Tells Joab, as a matter of fact, pull back. Send him into the, into the, into the most fiery part of the battle, of the war, and then pull back from him. So he, so he, so he dies. And God tells him, your son shall die because of what you've done. As David is penning this, I can't imagine. God is just in all his ways. Let him be true and every man a liar. David, by him confessing, he precisely accepts God's, that he you, God, are not the one to blame here. You are the one that's blameless. It's me. I sinned. And let it be to come. Now, with that being said, I know this brings perhaps a very interesting question to your minds. Does that mean that when you sin, God can possibly harm one of your children? He can possibly harm one of your loved ones? Now, we're a confessional church. I love the confession. I love the London Baptist Confession of 1689. Love it. Enjoy it. But are you aware? I know some of you members read it. Are you aware of what it says? I'll read it. I won't read it, but I'll reference it, and you can go back and read it yourselves. Chapter 17, paragraph 3, uses this in light of a believer who's kind of been walking away, leaving the means of grace, just what many call backsliding, if you will, just completely given over to that kind of worldliness. And one of the things that these diviners of back in the day, one of these theologians come back and they say, you know what? This is something very interesting because just like David, and they use this verse, 2 Samuel all right, twelve fourteen, to say, to support that, if you fall, you might bring temporary judgment upon yourself. I would disagree with that. Now, I don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. But I disagree with that. Why would I disagree with that? I don't disagree that the Lord chastises. I think that would have been a, perhaps a more appropriate one. And I was like, well, who are you? Are you more of the a theologian? Look, I'm not. This is just my the way I understand and the way I see it in Scripture. Because then the question that befalls me is, I sinned, and the Lord is going to somehow castigate my child or a loved one because of I sinned. Well, which one of my sins is he going to castigate them for? Is it the lie that I said this morning? Is it when I was cheating on my taxes? Not that I was. On record, I'm not. (laughs) But which one? Or maybe it's not even mine. Maybe it's my wife's. Like, where where does this fall? And then guess what we're back to? We're back to square one, performance-driven. Now we have to perform. God, I have to keep the law. Just so that you don't strike one of my children down. Just so you don't go ahead and kill my wife. Just so you, because quite frankly, if you look back, what did Job do? He didn't do (laughs) it. And he was still, and the Lord still took away. So we have to understand something very importantly. God is over all things and he will do according to his good pleasure and whatever he pleases. That we have to come to terms with. But as a New Testament believer, we're not under the law anymore. We still obey the law. We're not saying do away with it. Christ observed and he kept the law on our behalf. But for us, there's no condemnation. There's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And many will use that to go ahead and somehow support, well, guess what? I can go ahead and do whatever I want. No, no, no. No, no, no. All that is simply saying is, God is not there to go ahead and point a finger because there's one That took your sin to the cross. Beloved, that is a tremendous hope for us. It's an unbelievable hope that we have. Because Christ paid it all. When we sing that, He paid it all. That is why confession is a gift. And I know you guys know what confession is. Imagine, (laughs) this is an unbeliever. And by the way, at work, I was just talking with um, one of the vendors that we we work with. And he had a dispute with the company that he had. He left the company. Well, they kind of ousted him. And one of the things he says, you know, one thing I learned. And he's not a believer that I'm aware of. And he says, one thing I learned very quickly. You tell one lie, you got to tell 20. Tell one lie, you're going to have to tell 20 to cover up for that one lie it's endless because then you get into that we had a situation like that here many years ago it's, it's, it's crazy but when we can't pretend anymore you understand confession is such a great gift when you confess and you come clean most of you know what that's like I'll accept whatever consequence it is but I don't want to carry this weight anymore fourth Confession is a reminder of the doctrine of inherited sin. Did I know the doctrine of inherited sin? Verse 5. Notice that David doesn't say, God, why didn't you protect me? Why didn't you have me look away? Why did you have Bathsheba bathing right there from where I can see her? Why didn't David say that? Why wasn't David's heart saying, you know, why did, why, why, why did you allow or why did you permit No, it happened. And you know why David pursued that? Because of his sin. God didn't force him to go ahead and and act upon what he saw. It's obvious Joseph didn't have to, right? And Joseph didn't. So neither did David. David did the opposite of what Joseph did. So he had to acknowledge and fully accept responsibility for his sin. And how does he do that? His heart was not already softened at this point. His heart was already fully aware of his sinful nature. That is why he says, in sin did my mother conceive me. In sin did my mother conceive me. And that is precisely the doctrine of inherit sin, is to believe that the effect of Adam's sin permeates all of us, that we are counted guilty and that we are corrupt. And all our thinking, oh that doesn't mean that you can 't do good, uh, yes, I, we get that you can do good in 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 a, in in a human level, but before God spiritually speaking there's nothing you can do, and there's nothing I can do to go ahead and get on god 's good graces. nothing a child is born in sin, the child's sinful nature is not dormant. We have parents here, George and angela, new twins they're they're Their daughter's sinful nature is not dormant right now. These are the things we need to be aware of. Psalm 58.3, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. The psalmist wrote that to point out that, beloved, sin doesn't begin the moment we're born. It's already taking place. And David knew that very well. You and I are not an exception. We, beloved, in that regard, have to understand that clearly. So what does this conclude to? Well, that's pretty dire. But we have to paint it dire. Because for what comes in the rest of the psalm, you're going to see David's heart change. As he begins with this, have mercy on me, O God. As he goes into this, purge me, into this, cleanse me. Wash me clean. His mourning turns into rejoicing. Beloved, this is why when we look, the doctrine of inherit sin was overcome by the virgin birth. You know what I'm talking about? Jesus, he was born in a womb and everything, but he wasn't born the way you and I were. He wasn't conceived in sin. That is why the glorious truth of the virgin birth is so key and foundational to our faith. Because if he was conceived in sin, then we have no hope. But precisely because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, guess what? We have hope. I'll read to you from the London Baptist Confession, chapter 8, When the fullness of time came, he took upon himself human nature with all the essential properties and common weaknesses of it, but without sin. He, referring to Jesus, was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. The Holy Spirit came down upon her, and the power of the Most High overshadowed her. Thus, he was born of a woman from the tribe of Judah, a descendant of Abraham and David, in fulfillment of the Scriptures." That's our savior. That is why we can have hope. That in the midst of this reality, of the ugliness of our hearts, the only reason that you and I can be forgiven and repent and be reconciled to a holy God is only because of Jesus. No one else. No one else. One of the, you guys have heard that saying, a team is only as good as its weakest link. But spiritually speaking, your Christian journey will only be as good as your willingness to be broken. Do you understand what I'm saying? If you're not willing to be broken. Now, oh yes, I was broken in 1979 when I gave my life to the Lord. Are you broken over your sin daily love it I'm not and I ask the Lord often Lord break me it's one of the scariest prayers break me because I know that you're the only one that can put me back again but I need you to break this not in the sense of break the chains of bondage to sin, the way you would hear other, you know, people on, on, on TVs and podcasts. You know, and He's here to break the chains and here to. No, I'm talking about brokenness. True, honest, genuine brokenness before the Lord. Lord, I'm willing to wrestle with You the way Jacob. And if You have to dislocate my leg, dislocate it. If You have to dislocate my hip, do it. If You have to break my arm, do it. But break me. because I need to be put back together by you and to walk right with you. I'm not getting the magnitude of what I'm doing, of what my sin is causing. And hopefully, when we understand that, that is why later on in verse 17, what is it that David writes? The sacrifices of God are what? Are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. That is the heart God will never despise. And I know that, and I get it wrong. But ultimately, he doesn't despise me, and he doesn't cast me out because of Jesus. That is why. Not by the how genuine and sincere my brokenness is. I've been face down. Not too long ago, I was even preparing for a sermon, and there I am in my office, and I just had to, I just had to get on my knees and pray. And I and actually and in my heart, I'm like, just get face down, completely. And you know what comes to my mind? Did the cleaning lady clean around here? I don't want. I don't want to get too dirty. What? Lord, my sin. And then you know, I'm just flat out, Lord, I'm. I'm more than dirt. I'm beyond this. And here I am thinking, did the cleaning lady clean around here? Because that is the level of my sin and how much I don't get it. Lord, break me. And I pray that all of you, it's a, it's a joy, believe me, when the Lord breaks you, there's a sweetness to it. There's a sweetness that I can't describe unless you've been there. And I pray that if anyone here doesn't know that, you would come to know that here on this side of heaven. That you would be broken, lest the Lord take you and you stand before him where there are no second chances. Come to him. Come to Christ. Come to the one who paid it all. Come to the one who can make all things new. Come to the one that can grab your heart and turn it into flesh, that heart of stone that you have. But come to him. And we're going to see the following why David can say, You make me white as snow. You alone can blotter out our transgressions. Let us pray. Father. And we come to know the beauty. Of you searching our hearts, every single heart here this morning. May we come to know the joy and the gift that it is, that confession is to us. Lord, may you be pleased to show us where we've gone wayward. May you be pleased to draw us near to you once again. Help us to not look to our own doing. Help us to not look to our own action plan, but look to the Savior that fulfilled it all. That even before going to the cross, on that darkest moment, with the cross awaiting, the writer of Hebrews says, Lord, for the joy set before him. May we find joy in this repentance. Thank you that it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. And let us look to Jesus. Once again, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.